0: Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and put them on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand At the lodging place on the, way to, on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of this circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed." And when they had heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Thank you.
1: Invite you to uh, turn there to that reading if you can. Hopefully, as you came in, you'll have got an A4 sheet uh, on which you'll have that reading. If not, I hope there'll be some Bibles in front of you. You might not immediately see them, they're in that sort of little shelf that's just tucked away enough that you can't always see what's on them. These are the most frustrating pews in the world, aren't they? They're just the wrong angle for your coffee. Uh, Not quite wide enough for the Bible. It's just constantly teasing you. Um, But there are some Bibles there, and I'd invite you to turn there if you can. Uh, You'll find it helpful to um, follow along these verses. You know, it's one thing to decide to start something, isn't it? But it's another thing to actually get going, isn't it? Uh, USA Today has estimated that something like 67% of gym members do not use their gym because that first step of actually getting into the gym is not easy to take and it is an exercise in itself, isn't it? The first step is so often the hardest one to take, isn't it? Moses had the call of God on his life, but all that is no good if he doesn't step into it. As great as it is to line up at the start line, you have to actually get moving you have to get going, don't you? And the first step is often the hardest. Moses has set out now to return to Egypt as God had commanded him, but now this is only the beginning for him as he seeks to follow God's call. And I want to show you just uh, three things in these uh, the remainder of this chapter. Firstly, that that first step is the hardest, that obedience matters, and that God has got this firstly the first step is the hardest if you look to verse 18 and 19 here this is where we'll uh, look at this we've left off with God ushering Moses out of his presence by saying pick up the staff pick up the staff it's time to get going Moses and so here we find Moses taking that first step and that first step is the hardest one to take You know, the first time that you sort of walk into school, or onto campus, or into a new workplace, not knowing what to expect, not knowing who you're going to meet. The first steps you take into a new relationship, where you're hoping that they feel the same way as you. The first step you take, perhaps, as you're trying to get your health and fitness together. The first step is you try to break out of a sin that's clung very closely to you and to actually admit that you have a problem with it. That first step is the hardest. He went back to Jethro, we're told, and he said, let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they're still alive. He goes back to Jethro. If you've got a really good memory, uh, back actually in chapter 2, verse 18, same character has been called Ruel. Uh, same man both rule and jethro his father-in-law jethro is a sort of ceremonial title you might remember he's a priest of midian it means something like his excellency rule also means friend of god so he has these couple of different names but it's the same individual but look at what moses says to his father-in-law because it's interesting how he puts it go let me go back to my brothers in egypt to see whether they're still alive Moses doesn't mention the calling that God's given him just that concern for his family which is completely understandable isn't it but no mention of everything actually God had said and the real reason that he's there it's intriguing isn't it why maybe it is that Moses does this John Calvin reflects on it and his his thoughts he says whether he was forbidden to do so by god or whether he was silent from fear and shame is uncertain but i incline rather to this supposition that he dared not speak of his vocation lest its incredibility should cause him to be suspected of falsehood and vanity that is he doesn't want to say it because he thinks it sounds ridiculous <laughs> when he comes and says oh yeah I, I'm going to lead Israel out of this great superpower, the world superpower. Me and my brother. He thinks he'll be laughed out of town, and I think Calvin might just be right. Does he not trust God then? Does he maybe fear that Jethro just won't get it or won't agree to it, or does he just fear sounding stupid? seems like it's the latter. And Jethro said, go in peace. Not only does Jethro give his permission, he gives his blessing. And that would have been hard. You imagine, put yourself in Jethro's shoes. Moses has served him for 40 years, managing his flocks. Uh, he's also now waving off his daughter, his grandchildren. We've heard in chapter 2, verse 16, he has seven daughters but there's presumably no son because the daughters are left managing the flocks. Presumably if he had a son, the son would be the one looking after the flocks, not the sisters who are who being abused by uh, some bullying shepherds. And yet Moses himself is away from his parents. And you wonder whether Moses might just have been more like a son to Jethro. And so this is sacrificial on Jethro's part, isn't it? And Actually, there's a reality to this that, you know, for us uh, who are parents, there's a sacrifice to that. Parents, we're, we're parenting to raise adults who can leave, not nurturing them to forever be dependent upon us, that they can't leave. It's the opposite. It's that you're constantly sacrificing yourself to be able to encourage and empower them to be able to leave, to be able to say, yes, go. Go with my blessing. And that's a sacrifice. And that's a process of many, many little steps, isn't it? From the bed, to the cot, to the room, to school, to college, to work, to the world. Constant step of sacrifice. And Jester here reveals himself as a good father. He sacrifices the comfort of him living through them and keeping them close by. We should be so tempting to give them the freedom to go and live their life. And so we learn something about these two characters. We learn something about Moses, firstly, that Moses had obviously served with distinction for these 40 years, so much so he had Jethro's favour. Jethro wanted to do right by him. But we learn something about Jethro, don't we? That though he's not following Yahweh, though he's not obviously following God here, there's a wisdom, there's a mercy, there's an integrity to him and the way he carries himself. And actually he'll continue to pop up through the story actually as a significant figure who brings wisdom to Moses when he most needs it. But this is a hard moment for Jethro to let them go. And here's the interesting thing. Well, maybe it's interesting to me anyway. Uh, there's a temptation in life, isn't there, to paint everyone from the other tribe in a negative light. And this story does the opposite. Very often, actually, the negativity in Exodus focuses on Israel's lack of faith, not the people around them. It focuses on the lack of faith of the people of Israel, the people who should have had faith. You should have known better, not those who didn't know better. And that challenges us a bit, I think, doesn't it, to consider how we view others, whether that's sort of politically or nationally or religiously or even racially. How do we view those who are different to us? Yet you know, Moses, in this story, I've mentioned it before, has known what it is to be defined basically only by his difference. And and primarily for him, that's, that's been a racial thing, a thing of his appearance. That Amongst the Egyptians, he's known as the Hebrew. And in Midian, he's known as the Egyptian. And he's almost never just accepted by the people that he identifies with. He's just always seen as different in whatever space and setting he's in. And you can see some of the effects of that on Moses, I think. He seems a person caught between several different peoples and and feeling as though he maybe belongs to none. We shouldn't view others first and foremost by difference. But the reality is that sometimes we do. And there are actually maybe many people who know something of what that feels like. Something of the damaging effects of that. Of just being known as other you know, we're blessed as a church aren't we to actually to be made up of, of various different cultures. This is such a blessing. But we need to be careful to commit to actually not defining each other by our otherness, but by our oneness. Because it might be so easy to do that. The beauty of the gospel is we're actually invited into a community of oneness, of, of unity and diversity. But hopefully nobody would experience what it might feel like to only be known as being different, and this story does an amazing thing because it presents those that are different in such a positive light in so many circumstances, and Jethro is just one example of that. You can think of Ruth, that whole book as well, Ruth the Moabite, and yet the faith, the graciousness, the sacrifice, the service of it, and the whole, some, some people say the whole point of that book is to encourage Israelites actually in the way in which they reflect on others to maybe be marked by more grace. The Lord said to Moses, verse 19, go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. Moses must have worried that the return would be a death wish, and yet God has it in hand for him. He sent Aaron to him, the threat has gone. For all the protests that Moses has raised, he is obeying, like us. He does it with a bit of whinging and a bit of complaining first, but he does obey. The first step is the hardest one to take, isn't it? Moses has taken it, but it's only the first step in what will be a marathon for him. The first step is the hardest, but secondly, obedience matters, doesn't it? If you look at verse 20 to 26, obedience matters. Um, If Karis asked me to put out the bins... We come back frequently to this illustration because it's a large part of my life. Uh, it's, it's a large element of my sort of failing. Uh, it seems to be focused in, in this area. Um, there's lots of ways I could respond to that, couldn't I? I could think, well, I could go and I can plan to put the bins out. I said, Well, yeah, what I've done is I've set myself a nice little plan to do it. I've laminated that. I've put that up on the fridge for myself. I know that that's there to be done and I've thought about it. I could put that thought... Time in? Can I have? I've sat down. I've spent time thinking about it, visualising the moment of me putting that bin out, like Johnny Wilkinson converting um, uh, after a try. I'm visualising the moment. I'm seeing myself wheeling it out. I've planned. I've thought. uh, Maybe I've sat down. I've evaluated it. I've sat down, considered the pros and the cons of putting the bin out. Do I value being able to use my legs? Uh, Am I ready for a sort of life of having to be in a wheelchair if I don't do it and she smashes me up? I could think about the sort of debates of it, the pros and the cons. I could speak to some other people. What do you do? How do you handle sort of this thing? Or I could even maybe do a little bit of research, which we all know means read one sort of article online. Uh, And I think, you know, look for the one that says, yeah, don't put the bins out. I could do all of those different things. There's a million and one different responses, isn't there? But ultimately, all she really wants to hear is, and all she really wants to know is, did you do it? Did the bins go out? Did you obey And because I don't want to wake up in the middle of the night one night just with a pillow being placed over my face, uh, I do it when I remember. Uh, What we see here is obedience matters. What matters is, did you do what God asked you to do? And I think that's the idea that combines this slightly strange little story in verses 20 to 26. Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. Moses is coming back, as he's been told, but he's also leading his whole family out. And that requires a sort of confident leadership from Moses, doesn't it? And a faithful submission from Zipporah when Moses actually explains all of this to actually go with him and say, well, okay, let's, let's all go together. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand, taking it to perform the signs just as he's been commanded. And the staff, interestingly, I think, shows he's not only got the power of God with him, In those signs that God has shown him, he has. But he's also God's appointed shepherd for Israel. He's been shepherding the flock of his father-in-law in the wilderness. But now he's going to be shepherding the people of God. And you see, God's pattern is for a shepherd ruler who rules with a staff like Moses. Not a kingly ruler who rules with a scepter like Pharaoh. But then we get to the bit that starts to become a bit more tough. Don't we? Look at verse 21. When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he'll not let the people go. This is a difficult verse to understand. And this sort of idea will come up several times through the story, but it's worth at least addressing it uh, briefly this morning. I want to just ask three sort of questions that I think come up out of that verse there. Uh, Let me remind you of it there again. When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he'll not let the people go. First question I think that comes up is, what is the point of me doing all of this only for you to make sure it doesn't succeed at least that would be a question in my mind and here's the reality that just because you don't see success or what in your head you sort of see as success doesn't mean that that wasn't God's plan it doesn't mean that you failed at his task God had promised they would get out it's just not going to be the result of Moses convincing speech John Calvin reflects on it. He says, the tyrant, he's thinking about Pharaoh, must be gloriously conquered and overwhelmed in so many hard-fought engagements that the victory might be more splendid. Pharaoh will be hardened so that everybody would see that Pharaoh's power bows to God's power. Moses' speeches before Pharaoh won't be the thing that succeeds, but God's plan to free Israel will succeed second question i think comes up is if pharaoh is hardened by god can pharaoh be held responsible for pharaoh's actions the interesting thing through the story is you see eight times through exodus god hardening pharaoh another four times you see pharaoh hardening himself Another four times you just hear that Pharaoh was hardened and you don't really know if it was God or Pharaoh or a bit of both. So it is equally true to say firstly Pharaoh chooses the path that he takes because he wants to for his reasons. It's not robotic, that's true. But it's equally true to say that God could sign Pharaoh to this in that he did not save Pharaoh from his sinful will. See that God's sovereignty on the one hand and human agency and responsibility that we really do choose the things that we choose and we really are held responsible for those for good or for bad run parallel not in contradiction to each other it's like viewing the same event but from two different angles a close-in sort of shot of his pharaoh's decision-making process and how he decided it and why and yet on the other hand above all of that he makes that decision because god doesn't free him from his own sinful will last question that comes up then i think for now and like i say we'll think about this in future weeks in more detail but how can we have free will and yet god determine what we do because that's what seems to be going on here isn't it We do have free will, don't we? We decide our own actions, and yet it's a will that's distorted by our sinful nature, so that it becomes a prison. Augustine, a great theologian, said, The free will has been so enslaved that it can have no power for righteousness. And later, What God's grace has not freed will not be free. The point he's getting at is that you have freedom. You have freedom to essentially pick your poison, but not the freedom to pick righteousness. You have a free will that's not freed in order to actually choose what's right, but has enough freedom in order to choose a variety of different ways to self-sabotage. The good news of the Gospel is that God doesn't leave us forever trapped in a vicious cycle of our free will. That we could actually be freed from our free will, which is always bent towards sin, By God bending our will to His, by our minds being renewed, being transformed, being granted, as it puts it in the New Testament, a new man, a new person within us, by being gifted the Holy Spirit within us. Now, this idea clashes with culture, doesn't it? Because the most important, arguably, idea within culture is this idea that we are free, that we are autonomous. This idea is absolutely everywhere since the Enlightenment. But here's just one example, because it's put so clearly. Uh, This is from Jane Eyre. I am no bird, and no net ensnares me. I am a free human being with an independent will. And Exodus actually as a story doesn't seek to resolve that conflict between an idea that holds so much to a free autonomous will and this idea actually of God's sovereignty being at play within us. It doesn't seek to resolve that. Instead, the gospel simply asserts that God's freedom is more important. Because God is good, God is right, God is perfect, he's the only one who actually can rightly handle and exercise freedom. We can only actually have hope That we can be free ourselves if God is completely free to bend our freedom into shape. And this is an idea that will keep coming up through the story and we will keep sort of dialoguing with. But it's challenging, isn't it? He says here then, you shall say to Pharaoh, verse 22, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And this introduces a significant idea of a son for a son. That if you want your son to live, you need to let my son go. And we'll return to that in a few moments. But now we get to the bit of the story that I bet as it was read sort of uh, perked your interest up. This little encounter at the lodging place. At a lodging place along the way, verse 24, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. This requires a little bit of context, I think, because this is a a strange sort of few verses, and there are a lot of things we actually don't know for sure in these verses. For example, verse 24, who is the hymn that God is wanting to put to death? Is this Moses, or is this his son Gershom? Moses sort of makes more sense in the context of the story, but he's just been talking about sons, so it's slightly confusing. Who is the his in verse 25? Again, is that Moses or Gershom? It's not immediately clear. I think it makes slightly more sense that it's Moses, but commentators are confused by it. What are the feet in verse 25? Was this feet or was this, as is very often the case through the Old Testament, that feet is being used as a euphemism for genitals here? Zipporah in verse 25, is she the hero or was this her fault? Commentators differ on that. In one way, it seems like she's the hero who saves both their lives. But on the other hand, why was it that he'd not been circumcised in the first place? Had she perhaps vetoed that? We don't know for sure. I I think she probably is actually just the hero, but it's not clear. And what does she mean and who is she talking to? When she says a bridegroom of blood. Or in fact actually it could be translated a relative of blood. Is it Moses or is it Gershom? There are a lot of things about these verses that are not 100% clear for us. They're challenging. But let's think a little more about them here. Verse 25 to 26. Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. And said surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me. So he led him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. So how do we make sense of this little story? Because it's actually quite important and significant uh, on this journey. What had Moses done, or it seems more to the point, not done, that had so angered God? Well, Moses had not given the sign of the covenant to his son. That is, he had not circumcised it. Back in Genesis, this had been established. Genesis 17, verse 14. Any uncircumcised male shall be cut off from his people. for He has broken my covenant. And you might say for Moses, well, you know, Moses hasn't been brought up in Israel. Maybe he didn't know about this. Uh, You know, and that's a possibility, except of all things that Moses may or may not known of, um, without putting it too crudely, he could have sort of tilted his head down a little bit to to know that he should do that because he was with his mother and father uh, and weaned, so he would have been circumcised. There may have been lots of things that he wouldn't have known exactly about God and exactly how to follow him, but circumcision was one that he would definitely have known of. There's not really an excuse for Moses to have not done this. So why had he not done it? Well, there's the possibility, isn't there, that maybe Jethro, the father-in-law, maybe Zipporah, his wife, had resisted being from a different culture, being Midianites. But that seems strange, because actually to this point, they've only been supportive and supportive of Moses returning and making this journey and taking up this calling. I think for Moses, as someone for whom identity was and is a huge struggle in his life, this is my educated guess, he didn't want his child to be so obviously identified with the people of God and face hardship for it. Because sometimes, sometimes, you're just tempted to think that you will do a better job of protecting your kids than entrusting them to God. And yet, we won't. Is really the worst outcome in life that a child face hardship at some point? No. The worst outcome here is the child being left outside the covenant. The child needs protecting from the father's faithlessness in this instance. So why does God want to kill Moses? Well, you can have a pet tiger, but tigers are still a wild animal, and you can't tame the living God. There's a great line in uh, The line, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Where they ask, you know, is he good? Is Aslan good? Well, yeah, he's good, but he's not safe. Why does Zipporah act? Well, Zipporah knows enough to know Moses should have done this and does what needs doing. Then lastly, why does she call him a bridegroom of blood? That's a strange turn of phrase, isn't it? It's not 100% clear, but I think this phrase means something like this. I've saved your skin, pal. You owe me your life. And it's striking that the foreigner, the other one, the Midianite, does act with decisive faith, not the Israelite. You've become a bridegroom of blood to me. The first step is the hardest to take, but it's only the beginning of the work that God has to do in us, isn't it? Moses has still got a lot to learn. He will gradually learn, but he still has a lot to learn. And Faith comes in a surprising place here. Zipporah's obedience saves Moses from his disobedience. God had called Moses, but that calling was not really as important as actually doing what God had told him to do. The first step's the hardest. Obedience matters. Then lastly, we see God has got this. God has revealed his name to Moses. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. But now Moses has an experience of God's name in action. That God has everything in hand. Here is him living up to that name. Look at verse 27. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. It fulfills what the author already told us in verse 14. That uh, Aaron would be called and would be sent. The call to Aaron happened earlier. But the point is to remind us. That God had now brought Aaron into this too. So he went, that's Aaron, and met him at the mountain of God and kissed Moses. He's managed to sneak out of Egypt to get to see his brother. And this is sort of a bit like, you know, in, in those films where you see the sort of meeting in the sort of shady diner just outside of town as you sort of plot the conspiracy to come. Here it is, this sort of meeting out there in the wilderness And Moses told him all the words which he sent him to speak and all the signs which he had commanded him to do. There's been a shaky start for Moses, but he's beginning to pull things together, isn't he? He's beginning to get himself together here and he's beginning to get on with the work. And then look how things roll together so quickly, so smoothly. Then Moses and Aaron went, verse 29, and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he'd sinned their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Moses had said, I don't know if you remember, chapter 4, verse 1, the people won't believe. The people are not going to believe me, they're not going to believe the message you've given me, but his pessimism was wrong. And it's interesting how matter-of-factly all of this is presented, all of these things happening so quickly, so smoothly, it's so matter-of fact, because it was no big deal for God. It was no big deal to orchestrate this. God wasn't coming in at the end of this, going, "Oh, what a day." Oh, I can't cook this evening." Oh." Get, get Just Eat up on the app, you know. Get me a drink. I'm going to have to have an early night here, you know. P- pass me my tablet. I-, I need to rant something on Instagram. Uh, people need to know how busy my day has been. He's not exasperated, he's not exhausted, he's not challenged. This is nothing for him. It's easy. Moses' pessimism was completely misplaced. And we're supposed to learn that over the course of this story. And Moses will gradually get that. But that God has got this for them. And God has got this for us too. When they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Not only do the people believe, but they worship God. And they're worshipping God before he's done anything for them. Because they're trusting he will do it. Moses had underestimated God. He'd underestimated the people. He thought they wouldn't believe him. They have more faith than he could have imagined. They're already trusting that this will happen because God has said so. For all of Moses' faithless worrying, everything has panned out smoothly. Because God has got this. The first step is the hardest. Obedience matters but God has got this. God had established a principle there a bit earlier on, didn't he? I said we'd come back to it. A son for a son. He said there verse uh, Where is it now? I have to read back. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, verse 22, 23. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Pharaoh, if you want your son to live, then you must let my son, that is Israel, live. Pharaoh ultimately was willing to sacrifice his son in order to not have to sacrifice losing the people of Israel. He was willing to take his chances and hedge his bets that he would come out better in that bargain. And God shows through Exodus how far he will go to save his son, his people from Pharaoh. He will exercise his power over Egypt, even killing the firstborn of Egypt if he has to. And so Israel will be saved from this sort of external chaos that's around them of this evil ruler who enslaves them and abuses them and oppresses them. We talked about that, that Exodus on the one hand is God's work to save us from that chaos outside of us. And so God would take Pharaoh's son to set his son Israel free. But what about the chaos, the tyranny, the oppression that we experience internally? It's good to be freed from external chaos. Of course it is. The things that sort of go on around us and outside of us. But what about the chaos That we create for ourselves, within ourselves, for ourselves, because of sin. Well, God keeps to his principle, a son for a son. Into the New Testament, Paul writes in Galatians 4, verse 4 to 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. God keeps to His principle a son for a son, His son for your sin, that you might become his son. Jesus came and lived a perfect life that he might offer himself up instead of us. And that instead of facing the wrath of God and the penalty for sin, Jesus did. He does this so that we could be saved, that we might be made right, that we could be adopted by God, become his children. God gave his son Jesus up that he might save you his son his son who well it began this morning by quoting Tim Keller I have to maybe slightly paraphrase it he said something like Jesus who lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died being everything that we're not so that we could be everything that he was a son for a son. No longer slaves, but children. And if children, then heirs. Our hope is that this pattern is finally fulfilled in Jesus. That you and I might be freed. External chaos. External suffering. But most importantly, that internal suffering. That struggle And bondage to sin might be broken. That those chains might be snapped and that instead we might be welcomed into the Father's loving arms as a child. A son for a son.